What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. We are joined in the studio today with our super producer and longtime colleague, uh, Matt the Madman Frederick. How about Long Life? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Duracell. <laughs> well, oh, wait, no, I, that was the Energizer getting, Yeah, we might be getting into some trademark territory. I don't yeah. know if we want to say that or not, but uh, let's see. How about we come up with something by the end? We always say that, and then we forget. All right, this time. Oh, yeah, friend, this time, remember. this one's different than all the others. Hey, I've got a question for you yeah, uh, sure. by way of se- uh, fantastic segue here. What's the highest mileage you've had on a car? Oh, man. You know... <laughs> Uh, this is going to be a little bit embarrassing. Usually my cars don't make it to uh, much more than about 200,000 miles. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I, I mean, it's got to be rough driving. It's got to be, you know, that I I guess the ones that I've always had a lot of fun in, you know, like the smaller hatchbacks mm-hmm. and stuff, I I have to admit, I, I mean, I'm pretty rough on them. I treat them poorly. I, I try to take good care of them. I maintain them well, you know, with the oil changes and the fluid changes and the new tires and all that stuff and the brakes and all that. But You have a great um, maintenance I, it, uh, maintenance regimen. Well, I do. But, you know, the thing is, like, I also, I just, I, I, I'm kind of, I wouldn't say abusive to them, but, uh, you know, the ones that are fun, you know, sporty cars to drive, I mean, you, you kind of, What's the old saying? Like, ride them rough and put them away wet? Is that the, uh-huh. it's, it's like that with the cars. I mean, um I do my best to maintain them and, and keep them going longer than that, but uh, that's about maximum life. And then, I'll be honest, usually I'm, I'm kind of ready to move on. We've talked about this before with, like, how long do you keep cars, and people were right. outraged that I only keep them for, uh, you know, maybe four, five, six, seven years. And when we say uh, what's the highest mileage you got on your car, you know, we're we're also taking in mind the calculation one has to make where, uh, let's say, you've got a gasket, that blows and you've got to you you could replace it sure you could get it rebuilt or something but then you have to do the math on the age of the car the amount of miles it already has see that's what bites me on most of my cars is that i get to a point where you know i've driven it for a long long time and then the head gasket blows or mm-hmm. something and, and the cost to replace that is ridiculous or you know the timing belt breaks early uh, you know, after I've already changed it once, it breaks the second time earlier than it should have, right. uh, causing damage. And, and you know, things like that happen. 
And uh, again, you have to weigh that uh, that calculation. What's the longest you've ever owned a uh, not longest? What's the most mileage you've ever put on a vehicle? Uh, that I personally put on a vehicle or the highest mileage vehicle well, okay. I drove. These are all tricky numbers because yeah. I know that <laughs> as, when you're younger, you might purchase a vehicle that already has 100,000 miles on right. it. So I get that you know factored into it. But what's the the uh, the vehicle with the most numbers on the odometer that you've mm. ever driven in your life? I got pretty close. I got pretty close to uh, 300,000. I got about 200. 60,000 on one that was a Bonneville, which was previously owned by my grandfather, who drove uh, not uh, drove rarely yeah. at that time. That's actually pretty good because uh, considering the the uh, the vintage era that you're talking about, I know when, uh, roughly when you're talking about, um, that's back when life expectancy of cars was often 100,000 miles, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you ended up with a new engine or um, you know traded on to something else. It goes to the junkyard. Um, yeah, if it's if it's the one I'm thinking of. You're talking about the old big boxy ones, right? The uh, the, the great oh, big this, the great the, big land yacht Bonnevilles. Oh well, they well, were they always. Are, I guess they always. Yacht. Yeah, they always yeah. were, but the older ones. Uh, this was a. This was one of the more recent models, like before they before they quit making Bonnevilles entirely. Oh, okay. So right. it's a little newer than that, but mm-hmm. still. We've talked about that that vehicle. I owned two in the past. We've talked about those vehicles on previous episodes. Uh, they're nice inside. They're huge. They're like rolling studio apartments, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not a uh, at at that time. They're they're just not. They're not high performance vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also not necessarily. The super high endurance. I was just very careful with it, and I didn't do a lot of interstate traveling mm-hmm. on it. Which I think, I think some of that is key to uh, your driving habits, and that brings us to the holy grail for a lot of car owners. Right? the The platinum standard is uh, whether you can get your vehicle to three hundred thousand miles or more. We talked briefly before about the guy who has the highest uh, the highest mileage on any car ever, right? Was it is it a Volvo or a Volkswagen? I, I think it's a Volvo, and the guy's still piling on the miles, right? Or did he? Uh, or did he turn it into a museum? I can't remember which which occurred, but yeah. uh, it was above a million something, right? I mean, it was it was way up there, uh, a lot of miles. And I know that sometimes you know big rigs will end up with a million miles on them uh-huh. at some point. But uh, this is a guy just in his personal vehicle. Uh, driving all over the world, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's not uh, you know it's not uncommon or not unheard of for somebody to get three hundred thousand miles out of a modern vehicle, and uh, there there are ways to do that. I mean, this list we've got a list today that we're going to follow. And yeah. We should just be right up front, right up front with everybody about this. Is that this list is put together by someone who is an expert in their field, and I'll mm-hmm. tell you who that is in just a moment. But um, of course, you're going to be able to argue with just about any one of these. I mean, I think that lists are just by design. You can you can argue every single point in them one way or yeah. the other. It seems like so. Um, I understand that there'll be some uh, some points of contention here, and a couple of them that we'll point out. A few of them we'll just go past and you know write in with your comments. I'd love to hear what you have to say either way. Like you know, um, I, I d- agree, I don't agree, but understand that this is somebody else's list that we're following. So right. uh, this is this guy's opinion, and uh, I guess maybe ways that he has seen vehicles that have uh, lasted past the 300k mark. And the guy that wrote the list. Um, it comes from a uh, an 
a site called Bottom Line Inc., and it's just a, a group of experts that have submitted articles. Mm-hmm. So the person that has submitted this article for their auto section is a guy by the name of David Solomon. Now, David is a certified master auto mechanic out of, I want to say it's in Maryland. I'm going to look that up right now while we're talking. But um, he is also um, an editor, and he also is the chairman of a place called Motor Watch, which is an automotive safety watchdog organization, and the editor of the same uh, Motor Watch. I don't know if it's a site or a magazine or what, but uh, again, he's out of Butler, Maryland, certified master auto mechanic. So this is his opinion of how to make a car stretch to... 300,000 miles and a few you know we're going to go over uh, driving techniques fuel Mm -hmm. choices routine maintenance just a few other helpful tips along the way and then he also includes a section that this is maybe the the biggest point of contention here is that he lists when to change the oil when to change the brake fluid all that Uh, specifically but I don't think that you can really do that and we'll we'll talk about you can't list like one number for everybody it doesn't work the same for every single Mm -hmm. person so when we get to that we'll, we'll cover it but um, maybe we should just jump right in because yeah. he says, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, a lot of people struggle to get to 100,000 miles with their car because it's always breaking down and there's always come some kind of trouble. But these are ways that he has seen vehicles stretch beyond the 300,000 mark or at least up to the 300,000 mark. Mm-hmm. So the very first one is uh, under the category of driving techniques, right? Yeah. Uh, and the first one is to coast as much as possible. Plan your approach to red lights, stop signs, turns before you reach them. Don't accelerate uh, unnecessarily and step on the brake at the last moment because that wears down your brakes. Also, you know, you're pumping your engine. I Sometimes you got to accelerate, man. Well, sometimes you do. I mean, but I think later he mentions that, you know, you save uh, some of the, the heavy acceleration for um, not emergency, but when you need it, like, you know, merging and things like that. Yeah. But um, he's saying that, you know, when you've, when you've got your chance, uh, you know, just take it easy. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, hurry up and then stop. Hurry up and stop. And a lot of people are, are guilty of that. In fact, I'm guilty of that sometimes it lights when I don't realize that they're not timed correctly, you know, and you have to yeah. you hurry up to the next one. And, and just before you get there, it, it turns red again. So um, I think everybody has an example of this. I they, definitely, uh, I definitely have a problem coasting. For sure. <laughs> well, you know, it's some some environments is just tough to coast in. The city environments a little more difficult to coast in. It, you're, it seems like you're either accelerating or braking at all times. You know, I don't think there's much coasting at all in in city driving. Um, when you're out on the highway, you can do it. If you're kind of back in the suburbs or the hills or you know wherever, uh, it's a lot easier to do something like that. Um, the next tip is to accelerate slowly. Okay, so same type of thing. Some of these are related, but yeah. avoid those jackrabbit starts. So don't pretend as if it's a drag race every single time you leave the light. Um, you know, again, save that for um, emergency situations. But you know, flooring the gas pedal when the engine is cold is also a main reason for blown head gaskets. He points mm-hmm. out. So um, again, just one tip that he mentions here. And I've heard this so many times. The old that, driver's ed thing. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if you could ever. I've actually tried to think of this before. Like you accelerate as if you've got an egg between your foot and the gas pedal, and and that has always kind of puzzled me because yeah, it seems it, like any amount of pressure is going to make that egg crack. Is it like a hard boiled egg? You know, <laughs> if you have some squish. He's <laughs> not talking about like a uh, like a solid like a stone egg you where know, you can just mash <laughs> that thing down. You know what we should do? We should take those figures of speech because I know they've been on your mind a lot lately. Uh, take those idioms and stuff. And try them out in real life. You know, let's get an egg and yeah. put it... And, and we'll go to your car. And we'll go... 
and we'll go to Jonathan Strickland's car. He doesn't even own a car. Does not own a car. <laughs> it's yeah. true. But we'll go to someone's car to be determined and put an egg between a foot and the gas pedal and see how that acceleration works. It's going to be Ben's. Okay, the next one <laughs> on the list is allow the engine to get hot. It's something we just mentioned. Yeah. And, uh, that, uh, okay, a couple things. This isn't this isn't uh, letting the car warm up at, at at idle when you first start up in the morning. No, this is actually running. The yeah, vehicle. this is running. So it's it's helping to flush the contaminants like fuel and and moisture and stuff like that away from the motor oil. I don't know if I understand that exactly. You know, if, there shouldn't really be a lot of uh, contaminants and and uh, moisture within the oil. <laughs> I would say almost right. none. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, it mentions that you should drive at highway speeds for 30 minutes at least once a month. Now, I do, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I think you need to get on the highway and blow the carbon out of the whole system at, at some point. You can't just kind of, you know, poke around town and expect your vehicle to be at top, you know, operating condition uh-huh. if you're allowing all that stuff to just kind of build, build, build slowly. You're not really flushing everything out. So it's good to get on the, uh, you know, even if it's once a month and you do it only just for this purpose. You know, when you get on that on-ramp, really just just floor it. Let it have it. I mean, and, and you'll be surprised at what comes out of the tailpipe. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the next item here I think makes a good point. And I'll, I'll say why. It's something that they don't mention here, but it's delay heating or cooling to prevent adding extra load on your engine. Let it run for a minute so it's lubricated before you turn on, you know, defroster, AC. I'd like to uh, I'd like to join this with the next point. And in a combo deal, if I can. Oh, sure. All right. Uh, the next point is run the air conditioner or windshield defroster at least once a month for about a minute to circulate oil through the heating cooling system. Otherwise, oil may settle in the compressor, causing the system to stop operating. One thing that happens with a, with the AC in some hotter environments, more humid environments like here is the, here in Atlanta, Georgia, where we're based, is that oftentimes people will be running their AC and because of the condensation drip, they'll start to get like a mold in there. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, sure I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, okay, you know, all you have to do to test this is go down to Orlando, Florida and rent any car on the lot. And uh, you're gonna first thing you'll notice when you when you open the door is a musty smell, and uh, that blows out you know quickly. Right. Uh, but then you park the car again and you come back and it's musty again. And what causes that is that there's kind of like a buildup of debris on the evaporator coil that gets you know gets wet over and over again. It gets wet, it dries, it gets wet, it dries, and, mm-hmm. and when it gets real hot and it's wet, it becomes this moldy mess and it's deep inside the dashboard area. It's it's something you can't easily access and clean. Um, you can you know ha- you can buy a spray to spray down in there, but it just makes your car smell like a, it smells kind of like a cheap hotel room or something. It really does. It's that ozone stuff that you can spray in there, and then there's also some other stuff that they're supposed to kind of you know knock all that out and you know uh, chemically clean it. But uh, again, difficult fixes. They're not real easy, but that's all you have to do is just rent a car in Orlando, Florida, and you'll, <laughs> you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Right. But it happens the, here too. Yeah, but the other points about letting your engine run before you turn on the defroster air conditioner. I know it's really tempting. Every time you hop into a super hot car, you know, and, and we've all been there where you touch the steering wheel for a second and you go, ah, oh, yeah, it's just too hot. It's 500 degrees or right. whatever it is. Yeah, right. I'm uh, sure 500 is accurate. 
I'm sure it is. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. what you meant is 500 <laughs> Celsius. <laughs> I did. Yeah, exactly. No, but uh, you're right. It is. Uh, it's a, it's a great temptation to just reach for the AC button and and push the you know the max AC button. I guess. Um, what he's saying is maybe hold off on that for a bit until everything kind of gets a chance to um, open up a bit and, and circulate. Mm-hmm. And that totally that makes perfect sense. That also goes for the engine too. We'll we'll talk about that you know later. But first. Let's talk about using the parking brake. Ah, yes. Now, I agree with this one wholeheartedly as well. Um, it, this is a simple thing, really. If you don't use your parking brake, if you haven't used it ever and it's been years and years, don't use that thing if you're away from your house because it may seize up on you. Yeah. There's, a, there's a chance. Or it may not even operate. It might not work if, it, if it's already seized up. Um, if you use it all the time, continue to use it all the time. That's probably the best thing to do anyways. I mean, uh, if you... If you um, or someone who parks on a hill, of course, you want to use your parking brake and leave your car in gear uh-huh. um, if you have a manual transmission. Um, there's a lot of little tricks like this, but it's one of those things like if you if you don't use it, it, it kind of uh, becomes um, inoperable at some point because it corrodes or it rusts or whatever, and uh, you really do have to keep that uh, that mechanical um, operation free, you know, free of, of uh, contaminants or mm-hmm. whatever, rust or scale or whatever builds up on it. Um, even dirt and grime can make it not work. Uh, but again, my advice is that if you don't use, if you haven't used it in many, many years, don't attempt to use it today for the first time when you're, you know, you're downtown parking or something. It's kind of a use it or lose it situation. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So again, just, uh, I, I almost always use my parking brake, you know, whether it was a, a handle that I would pull up on the, uh, you know, the manual cars that I've had, or mm-hmm. even now I have an elect- I have an electronic parking brake, but it's just really, all it's really doing is removing the cable connection between the two, and uh, it just electronically applies the uh, the parking brake. It's kind of a fun thing to mess around with, but you can hear it applying. It's, it's, it's neat, <laughs> but... Um, same idea, anyways. It all ends up in a mechanical motion that locks the uh, locks the brakes. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, The next one, and this is one that I would bet most people do not do. Uh, This is allowing a turbocharged engine to kind of wind down, to allow it to cool. And the idea is that you let your car idle for a few minutes after you've driven, you just let it sit while you know the car's still running, but you're not driving. You're in park, and it allows the turbo to stop spinning, but it still it remains lubricated with motor oil, so you don't um, you don't allow it to just uh, like instantly shut off while it's right. still hot. That's the worst thing you could do for it. So, um, I have a turbo engine, and I don't do this. I don't allow my car to idle after I drive it. But then again, I'm not. And you're like overly taxing the turbo either, and I don't know if that really matters or not. Because the last I was thinking about this, Ben, the last yeah. um, portion of my drive on either side, you know, whether to the office or to home, and I think this is probably the case for most people. You don't exit the highway and then immediately park your car. Typically, unless you're parking at a you know um, a restaurant or maybe a shopping mall or, or something. Or yeah, something yeah, like exactly. But when you're going to and from work, you know, home and to work. Um, Typically, the last part of your drive is a slow drive anyways, you know, either through the neighborhood or, you know, s- smaller side streets. So um, this one applies, but I don't know. If you're if you're already kind of easing into that uh, that park mode, I guess, Sure. Um, maybe it's a little better for it, but um, it, I, I definitely do not let it sit and idle and cool down. And what do you think about the next one, the idea of avoiding two-footed driving? Oh, I think it's not a good idea anyways to drive with both you know, feet. Both feet. Um, yeah. It seems seems like there's just too much room for air there. Um, oh, yeah. I, I've seen people do it, and, and they can do it effectively, very effectively. Um, some people swear by it. That's all they do is two-foot drive. Uh, so we're, we're talking about cars that are um, automatic transmission, I should say, um, where you have one foot on the gas and one on the brake. Right, right and, foot on the gas, left foot on the – I mean, unless you're in a weird situation. Uh, and <laughs> the the problem here that the author points out is that it could lead to unconscious slight riding of the brakes. You know, it wears them out. The engine control gets com- confused. The engine control computer, excuse me, gets confused. It could lead to stalling, surging. It seems to me just kind of like a, I guess it's kind of a bad driving habit, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. And I understand that there's times when it may be an attractive option to you, you know, to drive with one foot over the brake and one on the gas. Um, well, it's even in a song, isn't it? Can't drive 55? I thought, well, I thought you were. It did sound like a, a phrase I thought you were going to go from, you know, one foot on the brake, one foot in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that far with it. Not quite that far. But, yeah, I think um, it, it seems like it's, it may be just a, a, a poor driving habit, I guess, that uh, that's carried on too long. You know, when you're when you're riding the brakes and um, it does cause excessive wear of the pads. So um, maybe not a good idea to do it anyways. Just try to try to work on using just one foot. 
I refuse. <laughs> Possible. <laughs> All right, so uh, here's the next one. Yeah. And this is another one that I've heard so many times from so many places. I didn't really – I don't know who to believe on this one, really. I have a hard time picking out the truth in this one. With a manual transmission, you should use the brakes and not the gears to slow down. It's always cheaper to replace uh, the brakes than it is to replace any part of your transmission, whether that's the clutch, the gears, you know, whatever the the, uh, the bushings, any anything that it does wear out as you're as you're doing that. So you, instead of downshifting to to stop or slower stop, um, you should use the brakes instead. That's their suggestion. Now I am uh, when I had a manual transmission car, I'm a, I mean notorious. Uh, downshifter. I used to love to downshift, <laughs> and I I like the way the engine sounds. I like the way it feels when I do it. Yeah, it was a very visceral thing for me. I mean, I, I really really liked it a lot. And super producer Matt downshift Frederick. Oh, that's a good one. And I you remember too. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. But uh, I can't uh, I can't say that this is one you shouldn't do because I really enjoyed doing that myself in my cars. Maybe it's the type of car that uh, that you have that you you know makes you want to do that. We should also point out, spoiler alert, even in the comments for this article, not a lot of people agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, or a better way to say it, many people disagree. Yeah, the, the comments, if you want to go through some of the comments, there's uh, there's some people that go back and forth. Well, I don't know if they even go back and forth. I think they just comment. The the author, I don't think, has really piped back in there to uh, to defend any of this stuff yet. Let's. Uh, here's another one under the category of fuel choices. Uh, what do you think of this, Scott? Try to use a gas additive with every fill-up because modern gasoline doesn't contain enough detergent to keep the fuel system clean. Hmm. I what, uh, at every uh, fill-up. Yeah. See, oh. There are some. Uh, there were for a, a long time some additives that made questionable claims. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and we're kind of like snake oily. Uh, there's definitely something to be said for many additives, but I don't know. I, I just don't see myself putting one in every time I fill up my tank. No, I don't I don't think many people do, unless it's maybe an octane booster or something like that right. that they require. Um, boy, that's that's a tough one. I, every fill up seems excessive. I mean, I under, and I do understand that, you know, the, the modern systems uh, can't necessarily deal with the high amounts of ethanol that are in, in a lot of the fuels now. Uh, but it's not just that. I mean, um, well, I, I guess you should avoid any additives, he points out, that contain methanol, methyl, uh, methyl alcohol, xylene, toluene, or acetone, because those damage the system as well. I mean, the hoses and the pumps and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I've heard, I have heard that the seals wear out faster because of the excessive amounts of ethanol, and um, maybe this maybe this combats that a little bit. Um, I'm not sure if his his goal here, and maybe we'll find out as we go through this list. But I was not sure if it's more of a um, way to keep the fuel injectors clean, or uh, you know what what exactly the the point is here. I think it's maybe just cleaning the uh, the pump and the and the lines out for yeah. this for this bullet point. Anyways. Yeah, I see. Um, this one, the next one I can personally vouch for, though, use the octane called for in the vehicle owner's manual. You guys know that in the uh, Boy Scout oath, I put a lot of emphasis on thrifty. Mm -hmm. So I admit, man, I was one of those people who, in my early days driving, even though I knew better, I should have known better, and I, I'm, I ignored it, I put, uh, I put the cheap stuff 
into a vehicle that required a uh, premium hmm. for a while. And it, and it does make a difference. Yeah, sure it does. Really does. Uh, check your owner's manual. I think this is probably also in the, uh, in the door jam. There's a sticker on every vehicle, every new vehicle anyways. Uh, but it, it is Im- really, really important to use the fuel that the manufacturer suggests for your vehicle. And here's another misconception is that if you have a car that takes regular f- unleaded fuel, and you put in premium fuel. Let's say you're going to take a long trip and you put in premium fuel, you know, for that yeah. first tank full. That's really good for your car, right? Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not true. That's a, it's a misconception. Stick with the regular unleaded if that's what your car takes, if they, you know, whatever octane rating mm-hmm. it requires. And, uh, you know, whether that's pre, if it's premium, you've got to stick to premium. Otherwise, you're going to have performance issues. You're going to have some noises. You're going to have carbon buildup. Mm-hmm. There's going to be all kinds of things that can happen. Um, you know, combustion chain, all the carbon in the combustion chambers builds up to a point and it causes other issues that you don't want later on because that all gets really, really expensive. So uh, you don't get better mileage or anything like that either out of the deal. So um, just stick with whatever the rec- recommended manufacturer octane is for your vehicle, and that's the best thing to do. Uh, the other thing here, and a lot of people don't pay attention to this one. This one is important. I, I, I really believe in this one. Don't let the fuel level drop below one quarter tank. So a low tank promotes condensation, which can also damage the fuel pump, or which will damage the fuel pump. Yeah. Um, I've heard a couple of things about this as well. Now, they're... I, I'm not sure one one aspect. I know I know the uh, the condensation thing is is a fact that happens and it does damage the fuel pump because you're not supposed to have water in your fuel at all. Um, Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, Sorry, man. the other the other thing is that um, you know over time, over a long time, uh, you're going to get little bits of stuff that gets uh, collected in your fuel tank. You know, it falls in through the fuel uh, fuel filler neck. Yeah, um, not a lot, but it builds up over time. There's a, there's a bunch of it kind of floating around in there, but it all tends to settle to the bottom of the tank. As you get to the bottom of the tank, I think there's a better chance that that stuff gets picked up. Now, I know that there are filters in place that are supposed to guard against that, uh, but the filters can become clogged, you know, if that's the case. If it's got a smaller pool of gas to draw from, it's more condensed into that one area, and it's going to clog the filter easier than if you've got a full tank of fuel and all that stuff is still settled to the bottom. But, um, again, that's a that's a minor a minor thing, and I... I, I have yet to really see physical evidence of that in any way. No one's ever said, look at this, you know, here's the, the junk right. that builds up in a fuel tank over five years or ten mm-hmm. years or whatever. I still haven't seen that. And I've heard of clogged filters, of course, but I've never seen like a, like a decent cutaway that shows you exactly what, what gets in there, the kind of crap that floats around in your fuel tank. And his last call for a fuel choices category is another do not, another thou shalt not. Uh, do not fill the tank to the top of the filler neck. Topping off after the gas hose clicks, you know, if you're trying to get to your fu- your point three five, if you like increments of five. Yeah, or if, who would do that? It's crazy. Or if you're, <laughs> or if you're what, one of the, uh, I like to call them the double uh, O hunters. Oh, okay, know? yeah. Yeah. It has it, to be an even number. Yeah. If yeah. it gets to, uh, I've done it before in the past. <laughs> Where it clicks and it's at ninety seven cents, yeah. And I think I can just push just a little, and and then it goes oh one, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, oh wait, it depends on which gas station you're at, and that's that's an unrelated, well, I guess tangentially related question that I have for you, ladies and gentlemen, Scott, and I have for you. Do you think that some gas stations are 
swindling you out of an extra estimated, you know, tenth of a cent or a, a, a whole cent because I don't know about you, but at some gas stations, and this is completely unscientifically proven by me, this is only my perception, at some gas stations, I swear, man, it flips right from 99 to 0.01. Yeah, man, that could happen, but... It seems to me like, you know, it's a tougher thing to control when the price of fuel goes up. I have cat-like reflexes, Scott. <laughs> cat-like. Yeah, but let's say that, okay, the, here's the difference. You remember uh, back in 2008 when the fuel prices were like $4.50 everywhere. You know, the, the prices just yeah, skyrocketed. And they were constantly changing. And I know that that's what the price is a lot of places now. But um, right now, here in Georgia, it's about two, what, two twenty-five, something like that. two fifty maybe. And... It's a lot easier to control that, uh, that that few cents that you want to pump into either round off the numbers or you know get to the point five or the five cents or whatever. Uh, but when the prices were up that high, the amount that you were able to squeeze in with just a, a touch of the trigger yeah. was far more. Like it, it cost more than the three cents or the six cents that you're trying to round up to. That's a great point. I mean, I think it just clicks off so fast that you're just unable to control it. And I think you can at a lower price, a lower price point, I should say. I think that's what's going on. But you're, you, there's always the chance, you know, that they, uh, that they, I don't know, whether they, they fake the uh, the weights and measures uh, sticker on the on the thing because isn't that all? That's all checked out, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you like re- how I immediately went to accusing these people of <laughs> attempting to swindle me. Well, you know those uh, those silver stickers that they place on the pump that usually they cover the pump so that, uh, a seal on the pump. You can't open the pump without breaking that seal. And then oftentimes it's a type of sticker that, you know, they have to scratch their initials into or a signature with a seal, uh, a raised seal. And uh, they, they measure for sure that you're getting, you know, one gallon is, is truly one gallon that comes out of the pump. Or um, I don't know if they do the calculation, though, because that changes daily with what you're actually getting versus the, the price. Right. So you might be right. They may be rounding up, up a little bit or would it be rounding down? I don't remember. Well, either way. Yeah, Scott, you make uh, you make several excellent points. Uh, perhaps I should not assume that uh, my reflexes are infallible and that big gas station conglomerates are out to out to rook me for a penny. You know, I like that you think that. That's your initial reaction, though. I like That's my that. initial reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm one <laughs> just a knee jerk reaction that uh, they're taking you. <laughs> They're trying to get over on me, Scott. <laughs> That's right. uh, oh, oh! Can I yeah. say one more quick thing about yeah, this? Now, uh, you mentioned you know don't top it off, right? And right. The, the reason we didn't—I don't think we talked about the reason. Um, maybe we did. Did we talk about the evaporative we canister? Did not. Well, we did so the, not. the reason is that it can damage the evaporative emissions canister, and that'll cause the check engine light to come on. And then you know sometimes when that check engine light comes on and, and they start <laughs> replacing parts, you know it's not just a loose gas cap or whatever that can start to get expensive. And I think everybody kind of understands where that's going. Now, I'm, oh, yeah. I used to do this all the time in some of the smaller, you know, economy cars that I had. And it probably was back before the days of some of the uh, the, the modern emission systems. Uh-huh. So I would uh, I would, <laughs> I would fill it up and I, I would get in, you know, till the, the pump stops. And then I would, like, push on the bumper of the car to kind of rock the air bubbles out of the tank and then put in as much fuel as I could. Now and I do that a couple times as much as I could until it was right to the very top. You could you could hear the fuel as it came out. Like I knew the the sound that it would make as it got closer to the end yeah, of the yeah, nozzle. Yeah. And uh, I don't. I mean, 
I don't think it damaged anything. There were no check engine light situations happening back then. Uh, but again, maybe that was before you know certain standards were in place and, mm-hmm. and didn't really bother it. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we're moving on to the next section already. Ru- yes. Routine maintenance. Routine maintenance. Ah, yes. Everybody talks about it. Not all of us do it. Yeah, and this is the one where he mentions specific mileage points. And I don't know. I mean, this again is th- – there's so many variables here. So I, I understand that it's not – this isn't an exact science, I don't think. Okay, so – we can agree with the first statement. Determine the normal life expectancy for major parts. Absolutely. With the idea being that you can replace them before they fail. So if you know, for instance, my brakes are going to probably go out around here mm-hmm. or I'll start getting that, you know, the the old cat's meow mm-hmm. from down down there. The uh, screech. Uh, yeah, the screech. I'm being a little too too kind when I call it the cat's meow. <laughs> yeah, when they start when they start whining at you, uh, that's the built-in warning. But well, there's also things like the timing belt where you can go with the uh, the knowledge of others. You can say that you know if you go to 100,000 miles, it's going to break on you. If you change it at 80, 
you're going to be fine. So you would be more apt to change it at 80 at that point. And there are a lot of things like that on a vehicle that, you know, previous owners can tell you. You know, when you have this maker make and model of vehicle and, uh, you know, this particular generation of vehicle, um, look for this problem at a certain point. Like it has a, right. um, has a plastic impeller that notoriously breaks down and degrades <laughs> and, um, you know, pull that thing out and put in a metal impeller, you know, that, uh, that will last you know, to the end of the vehicle, whenever that is. Uh, um, that type of stuff, you shouldn't ignore that. If somebody tells you something that, that's very helpful like that, you know, listen to the recommendations, I guess. But um, this first one is one that somebody in the comments actually had a, a big problem with. Oh, yeah. um, the first one, and here's an example, it just, you know, before they fail type thing. He says, most people never think to replace the radiator, but a radiator should be changed every 10 years or 150,000 miles or even sooner depending on your driving conditions. A lot of people just wait until the radiator goes bad, until, you know, there's a hole in it or there's something that else that's, you know, they're all, it's still plugged up that it's just not operating correctly anymore. Um, there's a lot of things that would cause you to maybe, uh, replace a radiator. Well, now, he's saying do it ahead of time. Well, now also, Nowadays, Scott, a lot of people aren't owning a car for long enough for it to be a replacement part. That's a very good point. So it might just be a situation where, let's say, somebody buys a, a pretty decent used car, and they've it, it's it had a one owner when it was new, somebody else bought it, the second owner when it was used, and now they're selling it to the third owner. Yeah, and it's been. Nine years, so the radiator is coming up on a change, and now it's just this unpleasant surprise. Well, there's the also this other factor that, that, that plays in here is that if you're not the first owner, you don't know if they were using just regular tap water to fill that thing, you know, with uh, uh, coolant and, and tap water, or if they were using the proper distilled water, and you know, uh, you just don't have any idea the previous treatment to that vehicle. So uh, these numbers are kind of arbitrary to me in a way. I mean, I, you can kind of you can kind of uh, maybe ballpark some of this stuff, and that's about it. But uh, some of the, the comments, you know, sections say things like, uh, I've never had to replace a, a radiator in my whole life, and, you know, I've, I've driven cars that have lasted well over 250,000 miles. Right. Uh, but I maintain them so well, and I use the proper fluids, and, um, you know, it's really not an issue for me. But that's just one person. That's how yeah. they treat it, and they know how to. And, and to do it correctly. So, of course, they're going to get the longest life out of all those, all those products. And, of course, I can't believe we didn't say this disclaimer beforehand, especially as we get into some of the stuff coming up later. Of course, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the thought experiment is true. Uh, how often should you rotate your tires? Ideally, every time you drive, you should replace all the consumables in your vehicle to get it at peak performance. Every time you drive. Every single time. Race car rules, right? <laughs> okay. You know, that would yeah. be the way to ensure the best performance and the highest uh, likelihood of everything working well together is that every time Scott Benjamin comes home from work, boom, new tires. All new fluids. All new fluids. Boom. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll also want to uh, retune the engine, right? We'll also want to, uh, well, additives, I guess, uh, new battery, new brake pads, all all that jazz. Air filters, all that stuff. Right. Okay. And that's uh, purely fantasy. Of know? course. But while we know that's true, we also know that there's a great amount of controversy uh, regarding the the so-called Goldilocks zone. Like, when's the ideal time to change it? Mm -hmm. 
I'm interested to see what you think uh, about this uh, tire life. All right. So I've been told, and I recently purchased a new set of tires, Ooh. not used, brand new. I know. And I know. Uh, it was right before our road rally adventure. And uh, the recommended tire rotation on those is every 5,000 miles. Now, I have a, a uh, an owner's manual that tells me that I get an oil change every 10,000 miles, which I don't do. I get it earlier than that, a little bit earlier. Uh, as I, I have anyway since I've owned this vehicle. Um, I just kind of chicken out and do it about every 7,500 7, instead of 10,000, like the uh, the manual tells me, a little bit early. Uh, but that doesn't exactly work in with the 5,000-mile rotation of the tires either, and it's not the simplest thing to pull in and have somebody do it, you know, on their, you know, tire warranty or whatever. It's a shop nearby my house, but mm-hmm. um, still it takes a little while for them to do it, maybe an hour to get it in and then, you know, 20 minutes to do it and another 15 minutes to settle up, you know, or whatever. I guess it's free. I shouldn't say settle up, but, you know, to eventually get the keys handed back to you. So it's like an hour and a half deal or maybe even two hours to get it done. Shouldn't take that long, but it does. And um, I find that now I'm just rotating it, rotating my tires only at oil changes. So around every 7,500 miles I'm getting them rotated. That's, I know, a little bit longer than the manufacturer recommends for the, the rotation. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it works better into my schedule, I guess, and it's kind of like getting it all done at one time. seems to be working out okay. The, the wear seems reasonable. Um, most people, I mean, I, I would say the majority of people don't even think about rotating their tires. It's something that's no. mentioned to them when they go to the quick oil change place. Right. But I think a lot of people don't really say... Go ahead and do it. I, I think that that's a uh, a lower percentage than you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna even qualify this even more. I would say that the the listening audience right now, the people that are listening to us talk, they probably rotate their tires more often than people that don't listen to a show like this, because you know that I think that I mean it's just a guess. Yeah, I'm saying that you know you have an interest in this kind of thing, and you know you probably tend to care for your vehicle. Ah, oh boy, I'm trying to. I'm probably painting myself into a corner. No, I shouldn't say even, everybody. Or it's not a broad brush thing. Sure, but statistically, way more people are going to be aware of changing their oil than change rotating their tires. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with, for instance, a battery. Like a lot of people will just ride their tires till one of them pops unfortunately mm-hmm. surely not you listeners uh yeah but and many y- of your friends and family members and you'll find out like here's how you find that out you know that the the front tires are far more worn out than the back tires if you've got a front wheel drive car right and you then, can't pass the penny test yeah and, exactly but the back tires look like they're brand new mm-hmm. you know that kind of situation right. um I've, I've been guilty of that situation before too where you just don't consider it even for long you know too long and then it's too late and I think this is even more apparent in the case of car batteries. Oh yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, you know, battery maintenance is something a lot of people completely ignore. And uh, well, they're not ignoring it; they're just waiting until the battery <laughs> dies and well, getting a new one. That's the thing, and you know, the battery <laughs> battery will give you a few signs here and there that you know it's struggling. You know, you'll see dimmed lights, or when you press a, uh, a you know, there's a few. Okay, there's a few. Yeah, like we, it, we know the signs. Right, right. Like if you crank the AC or the heater for a second, and then you might see the lights dim. Yeah, and you know some of this stuff will fool you a little bit because there's some alternator issues also that right. will play into this. So yeah, okay. There's a there's a, a tangle of you know if this then that type of situations, mm-hmm. but we're talking about batteries. So we'll stick to that. And one way that you can test if your battery's going bad, or if you if you have a feeling that your battery's going bad, or or maybe. Um, 
you know, if, if you've noticed you're under hood, under the hood, poking around, doing something, changing the air filter, whatever, or oil even, and you notice that, uh, you know, the little stickers on, on your battery that you can yeah. peel off to show, indicate the date and the, yeah, yeah. the month and the year that you bought your battery. Use them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cause they, they, those things are far more accurate than you would think. They, it seems like, um, I've had batteries fail exactly when they said they were going to fail. If it's a 60 month battery, it fails right at 60 months or, you know, four year battery, whatever, it's exactly at that point. Mm-hmm. So they, they know what they're doing with these. And one way that you can kind of predict the end of your battery life is if you go to a, t- a shop that can test it that has something called a conductance tester. Now, that's, uh, that's probably the best way to determine if your battery is, in fact, uh, kind of near the end of its life or it, they can predict when it's going to fail. Um, with the conductance test. And, um, I don't know if we want to go too deep into, you know, exactly what this does, but, um, it checks the, uh, it indicates the battery state of health, I guess. It'll tell, it'll tell you how well it's, uh, it's conducting current. It's allowing current to flow through it. So, um, uh, we can probably just leave it at that, that, you know, it's the best predictor of an, of an end of a battery's life if you want to just have like a bench test for it. Yeah, it is. Uh, additionally, the author recommends, replacing um, whatever conventional battery you would have with an absorbent glass mat or a GM battery. So take out the lead-acid battery, Yeah, put in this absorbent glass mat battery. And I guess the comparison would be like an LED versus an incandescent light bulb. It's going to last longer. Uh, it's recharging faster. They, it, it's got a couple of different advantages. One of the big ones is that since they're sealed, there's a much lower chance of them venting some kind of gas or causing corrosion to cables. That's a big one right there. Yeah, so many, will get you. So many problems are caused by those corroded cables. So, um, yeah, if they if you're not going to corrode those cables and and deal, you know, you don't have to deal with all that mess, then uh, might be worth it. I think there are a few extra dollars. They're a little bit more than a, a lead acid battery, uh, but not a whole lot. I mean, the example battery that they mention here, a couple of different brands. I, I won't mention them, but um, prices start at one hundred and thirty dollars. That's pretty low. Really, I mean, that's about what you'd pay for a standard lead-acid battery anyway. So um, if that's the price point, it's not too bad. Uh, I know it does go up from there, so, so look into that. But um, All right, here's another thing about the battery. If you can open up the battery, you can top off the electrolyte fluid, and you have to – okay, this is tricky. You can use distilled water for this, but there's also – uh, a, you know, a bottled material that you can buy off the shelf that is, uh, you know, is battery liquid, I guess, you yeah. know, that you're supposed to use yeah. for the specific purpose. So, um, you know, look into it before you do either one. But if you have to, you can use distilled water to top off the electrolyte. So here we go again, Scott. When should uh, when should someone clean the throttle body and fuel injectors? Okay, it says every thirty thousand miles. So this must be different than the fuel additive that we we're talking about before. That must have just been to keep the pump lubricated, the lines clear, and stuff right. like that. This is specifically to clean the throttle body and the fuel injectors, and I totally agree with this one. I think this is a good idea. That uh, you know, if you haven't in a while, you know, maybe at the uh, at the oil change when they say like we're having a manager special today, you can clean the fuel injectors with uh, this additive. Um, you know, something they just pour in the gas tank. Um, sometimes they'll, uh, they'll actually tear it apart and, uh, you know, use a spray on yeah. the, uh, on those surfaces. And that's a little bit more, um, a little bit more complicated. It's not that hard. You can do it at home, uh, if you know what you're doing. But, um, this is something we're talking about just pouring in the gas tank and then taking a drive. So what's the harm in that? Maybe it's a few dollars, uh, mm-hmm. and it keeps your fuel injectors clean. I'd say it's worth it. Yeah. What's, what's your opinion on it? You think that's, that's a good idea? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, yes, I don't think it's a bad idea. I guess I'm wondering. He's he's really plugging additives here. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not always, uh, you know, one for pouring a bunch of extra, um, you know, liquids into your vehicle, like into yeah. the, the gas tank, the fuel tank. Um, I do that as few times as I have to pour, you know, these additives in, whatever it is. I no no octane booster or anything like that. Don't need that. But any of the uh, the cleaners. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit cautious about it. I like to I like to research it and make sure that it's something that I need to do. And again, it's not every time like he's saying. Right. This one in specific is every thirty thousand, which I think is reasonable. And not all additives are created equally. But to your point, I do completely agree with the idea that it's not expensive. It's, you know, a prior planning situation prevents uh, catastrophes, right? Yeah, sure. And I feel the same way about the spark plug maintenance, which he pegs at every 60,000 miles. Hmm. Placing the wires, if it matters, every 100,000 to 120,000 miles. Hmm. Okay. I think replacing spark plugs I don't think it's that bad also it gives you a chance to do some possible diagnostic you know some cool forensic diagnostic on your car oh you get to read the spark plugs right yeah yeah Yeah, I think everybody who has a is it Chilton's or Haynes or both of those you know the the manuals that you can buy off the shelf at your parts store yeah Uh, a lot of times the back page is dedicated to reading spark plugs you know what that uh, what that means and they have that cool color diagram that you can look Mm -hmm. it up and try to figure out what's going on and um I don't know. At 60,000 miles, does that seem early or does that seem late? I don't know. I mean, it seems like a lot of them say that, you know, these spark plugs are guaranteed for 100,000 miles or the owner's manual will say 100,000 miles right. now. Um, that might be a little bit early, uh, 60,000, I mean. Um, but then again, back when I started driving, it was re- it was recommended every 25,000 miles, I think, yeah. to replace spark plugs. It's got to be just new engines in the way that uh, they burn a little cleaner maybe. I don't know. I, I there's got to be some kind of an explanation for this. But you were replacing, you know, wires and plugs a lot more frequently back then than you are now. Either way. That's true. That is absolutely true. But that was also back when you could uh, fix more of your car on your own. These that's, newer models, man. That's true. These newer models with those black boxes under the trunk. Electronic stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, here, here's something that was small that I want to hear your opinion about, listeners, because I did not know. I don't know how much this next one counts. Well, well these are these are just helpful tips, right? So we're into we've, we're past that now. We're into just a few, maybe three or four helpful tips. Sure. Okay. Keep only a few keys on the ignition key ring. The idea being that the extra weight from a fistful of keys will wear out the ignition switch prematurely in some vehicles. How how heavy are these people's key rings? Uh, you know, man? I, I gotta tell you, I think I think I believe this one. I, I I think I buy into this because I've seen people with these enormous wad of keys. It's like a uh, baseball, you know, uh, or they have all kinds of crap hanging from them that's heavy. You know, like whether yeah. it's lighter, a can opener, a um, you know, bottle opener, I mean, or something like that. You know, it's heavy. I can't hang with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot, or a snow globe or whatever is on the end of that stupid key ring. Um, if it's heavy, it does cause the key to be pulled in kind of an, an odd angle. And I've I've felt cars before that the key is loose in the ignition. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know like what you're talking about. Like it doesn't feel like it locks in there. Like it's like it's it's all sloppy in there. Like it's going to pop out while you're driving or something. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess maybe that's it. I, I just always thought it was like wear over the years. You know, like it was an old car. After 15 years, it just becomes that way. I didn't really, you know, credit this to having like too many keys on the ring or anything. I'm, I'm not one to keep a lot of stuff on my keychain at all. Just the one Let me key. Show you this. Yeah, 
I, I have very few keys on my key ring, but it's because I really don't like touching jangly things like keys or jewelry. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but uh, but I've always kept it very very simple. I have, however, seen people who are carrying a key ring that would no no lie, man with all the stuff on it be like a foot and a half long. Yeah, with like a lanyard attached to it and right. then and then buttons on the lanyard right, and then right, stuff right. clipped to that at the end and key rings clipped to key rings yeah, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> a lot of people have that stuff and I <laughs> I don't even have a key ring. I have just the key fob. That's another thing. And oh, what's that? The just the key fob, just the um the the smart key ign- push ignition. Yeah. Uh that changes it. I mean, I think that I think we'll see this point about fewer keys on your ignition uh, or fewer keys on your key ring, um, I think we'll see it become increasingly irrelevant. Because of the way that they d- they're designing the yeah. keys now? Yeah. And also, uh, you know, of course, the cars that you don't even have to put the keys in the ignition at all. You just keep them in your pocket. Right. Uh, you know, it just has to be on your person in order to make the vehicle work. So, um, yeah, you're probably right. I bet this uh, this problem will kind of slowly phase itself out, really. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is indeed a problem, I, I don't even know. No, nothing scientific to prove this. Also, I'm just going to laundry list these next ones. Yeah, quick, sure. That's yeah. okay. Of course. Uh, using a car cover, obviously... If you don't put your car in a garage, you want to put your car under something, right, uh, regardless of the environment you live in. Some kind of shade. Yeah. Or simple, simple. Just a car cover. doesn't cost very much. Pretty inexpensive, really. Use a windshield shade or a dashboard cover. Yeah, those are those are great. You should have one. I'm laughing because I lost mine recently, and I'm, I want to get it back. I have, like, you know, I used the uh, expandable ones. Oh, yeah. Where, where you... Uh, it's like the plastic flexible material that's got kind of a foil on one side. Yeah, there's kind of like a wrist flip trick that you have to do to yeah, fold yeah, it up yeah, to yeah, make yeah. it a, yeah. a little compact circle. Mm-hmm. Those are the, those are my favorite purely because of that trick of that wrist flip trick. <laughs> I kind of like the novelty ones sometimes, not not always, but sometimes the ones mm-hmm. that um, depict uh, uh, something on the front that looks almost like you're looking into the vehicle. Yeah, yeah, and seeing cool. some crazy scene or something, or maybe an advertisement for like uh, I think I've seen one that's you know like a Better Call Saul uh, <laughs> advertisement right. with some kind of crazy you know saying some kind of funny saying. We should cool. get into that business, my man. Maybe, maybe. All right, so uh, the other one here. Uh, Oh, this is when to change fluids. But yeah, this is the big one. All right, so we should probably go through these kind of quick. I don't. Th- I don't think we okay. should spend too much time on okay. this because I guess my uh, my overall opinion of this is that um, you should really just go with the recommended manufacturer's recommended service intervals for all this stuff. You know, whether you know whatever the fluid is, whatever the the change interval is, um, it should be dictated by the manufacturer. And if not that, I mean, you can cheat it one way or the other. I guess a little bit. You know, better to err on the side of caution, you know, and change the yeah. fluid early rather than late, of course. But right. um, to to put down an exact number for everybody here, I don't think that's uh, that's something that maybe should be done because somebody will look at this and decide that's that's okay, and then maybe that's not okay for their specific driving conditions. But but there's some good tips in here too. Yeah, there's a great tip. Okay, this is something that this is something that I wish more people knew about. You can have your oil analyzed with a test kit, 
that will tell you whether you change the oil often enough for your kind of driving. And this is after his recommendation that you change it every 3,000 miles. Oh, so, yeah. So that's kind of like the, uh, well, as we say, the big oil uh, situation, you know, right. where they want you to change every 3,000, but the manufacturer will say 75 or 10,000, right? But but you're right. Not many people know about this service, and, and I've never used one myself. I, I've known they're out there, but I've never done it. I haven't done it yet either, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a crack at it. I'm probably gonna do it with one of my family's cars in particular, cause I want a case test. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I want to do it with a couple of cars, but the oil analyzers folks are not a group that's designed to sell you oil changes. No. You know what I mean? No. So it's a, it's a good source for that kind of information without knowing someone has skin in the game when it comes to, you know, selling oil changes or something. It's just the information about your specific driving habits and what what they can learn about your habits from the oil that you send them. Yeah, exactly. And the idea is that, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, a, a blood test for a human. You know, you take a sample yeah. of blood and you send it off to the lab and they tell you the results. It's not, it's not like they've got any kind of, uh, any kind of agenda really. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a great thing. And, and, and just for an example, they can find like trace amounts of coolant that are in there. So they can indicate that, you know, that you've got a, a seal issue. Um, you know, maybe your, maybe your, um, head gasket's about ready to go. Or maybe they could find sand or something in that that, um, mm-hmm. um, or, or, um, I don't know anything. It could be bits of metal, yeah. uh, you know, and, and tell you that there's wear happening somewhere, but it's still too fine for you to see or feel. Uh, so it, there's all kinds of things that can turn up in these uh, in these tests. It can function as an early warning system, you know, a yeah. kind of uh, canary in the cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, brake fluid. Yeah, a lot of people uh, neglect that brake fluid and just let it go for you know whatever hundred thousand miles or whatever. Yeah, just go crazy. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's recommended, or he recommends anyways, that every two years or twenty four thousand miles, um, a, a vehicle with an anti-lock braking system should be changed. Um, every three years or thirty six thousand miles for those that don't have ABS. Now, I don't know. There's not a lot of vehicles right now that don't have ABS. There's a few out there still, I guess. Sure. Older vehicles, of course. Yeah. Um, and then he recommends a specific type of uh, brake fluid that you need to use, a synthetic brake fluid, uh, with, of course, corrosion inhibitors, things like that. So um, a lot of this is just, you know, I guess this is the best thing to do for your vehicle. This will help you achieve that 300,000 miles. Power steering fluid, he recommends every two years or 24,000 miles. Long-life radiator coolant, every three years or 36,000 miles. And that seems about right to me. I can, I can understand that. And yeah. again, the recommendation to use distilled water, not tap water, uh, because of those mineral deposits. Because, man, have you ever have you ever um, used a power washer before? Like um, in one season, let's say in the fall you use it, and then you go to get it out in the spring, and that nozzle at the end is completely just frozen oh, yeah. up. calcified almost. Yeah, yeah. so you got to soak the – I've had this happen to me just this year. I had to soak it in uh, CLR before I could even use it. And I thought I had done a good job of flushing everything out of there and keeping it clean, but apparently not. Uh, so that kind of thing happens inside your radiator where you can't see it, and, and it's not good. Um, the next one here is transmission fluid for automatic transmission. So he recommends every three years or 36,000 miles in front-wheel drive vehicles or five years and 50,000 miles for rear-wheel drive vehicles. Of course, synthetic transmission fluid will extend that interval by one year or 10,000 miles either way, so front or rear-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a bad recommendation right there either, and I think that's maybe ahead of what the manufacturer would suggest. Yeah, for manual, by, by way of comparison, uh, Solomon states uh, it should be every 60,000 miles 
or 100,000 if you're using synthetic fluid. Ah, now see, I'm trying to think back to what my recommended service interval is for my car with an automatic, and I think it's somewhere around 80,000 for the Volkswagen. And, uh, Boy, I don't know if that's synthetic or not, but anyways, it's uh, it, this varies by manufacturer. Is my point, right? And, and again, it's broad brush. Uh, yeah, and also the era of your your vehicle. You know, whether it comes from the 1960s or whether it comes from you know the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all this all this matters. It really does matter. Uh, fuel filters. At least every 50,000 miles, a partially blocked fuel filter can cause premature failure of the fuel pump, of course. Um, you should use the same brand of fuel filter that the factory supplied. That's always recommended. If you can, use the factory recommended sh- uh, switch out. Um, that seems like a long time for me. Yeah. 50,000 miles? Older, yeah. older cars, I was used to changing those. It seemed like every... I, I don't know, Ben. It seemed like every couple of weeks I was putting a new fuel filter in. I like don't know every, if it was every red light. Huh? I don't know what the <laughs> deal was, but I was changing the fuel filter an awful lot on some of those older cars. But that kind of rounds out this list. And so, yeah, the assumption there is that if you do all of these things for your car, that you will greatly increase your odds uh, of getting it to three hundred thousand miles and beyond. However doesn't say these are guaranteed things and honestly a lot of stuff on here doesn't apply across the board and it's not it's it's not stuff that a lot of people do like driving techniques are so ingrained after a certain point you know what i mean yeah like like me and my downshifting Right. No offense, but yes. If I if I had another manual transmission car, I probably would downshift it, knowing even knowing that I should probably be using the brakes instead of the gears to slow down. And uh, you know, whatever. Maybe let's say that you. I don't know if you were you were joking about it, but two foot you know two foot driving on, on oh, an yeah, automatic yeah, yeah. car. Yeah. Um, if you really do that, it's a tough habit to stop. I understand that, but also Ben, I was thinking about this list, and I was thinking how much of this comes down to kind of you know a lot of cases come down to luck. You know that you you just happen to notice something one day, and uh, and then you you know you correct it, but that could have been a big problem had you let it go another week, you know, or another day. Oh, sure. Even. Uh, just I've had many times where something like that's happened before. I've just noticed something by accident. I was looking at something else and and think like I better just take care of that now, and then you realize that just how bad the situation was or could have been. You know, had it had it been neglected. It was a um, bummer for me for a while since, since I. Drive through a lot of construction zones, and I uh, live in the city. Right, I went through a period of about three weeks where I had I found a nail or a screw in a tire every week. Oh my gosh! And uh, you know, none of them were like blowouts or anything. I was able to get them all plugged. Yeah, but it's pretty it was, fortunate to it not was have just that. Ridiculous, man. Yeah, to not have that end up in a blowout or a uh, well, or or punctured sidewall or something. Two of them were screws. Yeah, all three were on the tread. Oh, uh, you know, did the little, you know, the Windex trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah to, to figure out uh, to figure out the stuff. Um, you didn't just spit on there. What you use Windex? You didn't just spit on there like a little spit on your finger and put it no, on there. Oh, man. <laughs> Don't look at me like I'm crazy. A lot, of, a lot of people do. A lot of people do that. Or so. Okay, soapy water. How about soapy water? But Windex works fine, I'm sure. Uh, so Windex is what I have. <laughs> Just spit on that. <laughs> All right. Also, um, I was also thinking about this too. I mean, how much build quality plays into this? Now, a lot of people yeah. used to think, you know, a car built on a Monday is no good. You want a car that's built in the middle of the week, or you know, there were there were so many um, theories about, you know. Uh, 
how the, the quality of the vehicle coming out of the factory was altered by the day of the week that the car was built. And whether there was something to that, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it, it played into, you know, some, some vehicle at some point. Um, but also, like, you gotta think of things like this too. Like, I would assume, I would assume that a BMW engine is gonna be put together a little bit tighter, a little bit better than maybe say, um, oh, who, what brand am I gonna pick on here? Um, <laughs> no one's gonna like me when I pick whatever brand. Right, How about a Yugo? Right. I can pick on a Yugo, right? Uh, the oh, build quality, we'll see. the uh, <laughs> the build quality of a BMW engine is gonna be slightly higher than the build quality of a Yugo engine right from the factory. So there's that to factor in as well. Uh, what can you expect to get out of that engine? You know, the the is there. You know, it's 300,000, just, there's just no way. I mean, is, is it 100,000? There's just no way. Right. Uh, that's the fact, that's the, that's the fact with a lot of these. Um, and also, again, I, I come back to luck again, but you could do all of the stuff that's on this list. You could be, you know, maintaining your vehicle for that first 150,000 miles, and then some, you know, hero in a Honda Civic comes by and smashes into it, and then it's all over, right? Someone on the highway trying to make, uh, you know, trying to race, trying to, uh, you know, whatever it is. It's a Mustang, whatever it is. They plow right into you, and uh, and it's all for nothing. Mm-hmm. So you got to start over again. You know, would your car have lasted three hundred thousand miles? Maybe, but you never know. You'll never know past the point where it ends. Um, that's that's kind of a frustrating part of this whole thing too. Is that yeah. you you can do everything you you possibly can to make it last that three hundred thousand or even more if you want. Um, but there's always going to be that off chance that something's going to happen. Like we've had wildfires in the area recently. Uh, in the in the southeast here, and lots of them, and a lot of people lost a lot of vehicles, and they're parked in a garage or whatever. Imagine if something like that wiped out a, a you know a car collection, or even just kind of that that prized baby that you had in the garage all the time, you know that you've been keeping yeah. since uh, you know for fifty years, and you've got two hundred and ten thousand miles on it, and you're hoping to get to three hundred thousand or, or whatever or for, forever, you know, drive it the rest of your life. Um, that kind of stuff just happens, so you got to kind of deal with that too. Um, Man, what a downer I'm trying to be. I'm not trying to end on a down note no, here. No, but, no, down um, it's, I mean, it's it's a good point, and it's also it's also true that of course you know cars are more than just a financial investment. I don't know anyone who's owned a car for more than five years and not felt it had some sort of value other than just money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. We get attached to these things. Sure. And also, uh, of course, you want, even from a purely financial perspective, you want the best from your investment, you know, and you, you want something that you know, like the back of your hand. Like, uh, my favorite examples are always people who have uh, a beat up old manual with a tricky transmission, you know, and maybe even a gear you just have to pop past, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're like, all right, well, look, first, third, fourth, and fifth are fine. <laughs> Watch out for number two. You just got to yeah. gun it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and those those sorts of things, while, while, you know, disadvantages or imperfections, after a time, they kind of become endearing, you know? Yeah. And the goal is, of course, to make your car last as long as you could, maybe even to give it to, you know, your kid in the future. Or well, something well like that's that. always the hope is that, you know, you've made this purchase. It's probably this, what, sometimes it's the second largest purchase behind a home, usually for, for most people. Oh, sure. And, uh, so it's, it's something that you've got not only, Money invested in, but you've also got a lot of time invested in it at this point. You know, if you get to a high mileage, ve- high mileage vehicle, mm-hmm. um, of course you got a lot of time in it. 
Um, unless you're that guy that got 393,000 out of his vehicle and what, in his truck in what, six years was it? (laughs) That's not a whole lot of time for that much mileage, but, uh, but apparently he was doing something right with the, with the maintenance. Um, but yeah, you've got, you've got more than just, uh, more than just money invested in it. You've got, uh, you, you, like you said, it's a, it's like a part of the family at some point. Yeah. So, especially one of these, these, that, you know, it's in the 300,000 ballpark. Um, that's something that, you're probably going to pass on to somebody else in the family if, before you would get rid of it. Uh, if not, just give it to them. You know, just say like, here, you know, just change the oil every three thousand miles, you'll be fine, or whatever you say <laughs> as, you, as you hand right. the keys over. But, um, <laughs> anyways, I, I would love to hear what our listeners have to say about this list. It's been a long time going through it. It's not a very sure. long list, really, but um, there's so much to talk about. I feel like we're still glossing over a lot of stuff. But uh-huh. um, I would love to hear. You know, some of the, uh, the people that agree with or disagree with some of these things. And I know that, you know, there's going to be people on either side of this. So, so let us have it. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Yeah, l- write in. Let us know if you have any tips for helping your car make it to 300K plus or if you have uh, beef with some of the tips that our author here has outlined in his article. And just so you know, in the comments of this, some people had some beef about gas additives i think in particular and octane arguments and i think the fluid changes you know the the intervals that were recommended and uh it's there's again there's a lot to argue with there's always there always will be with a list like this so uh we we understand um we're not going to be offended by any comments or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Scott will be tremendously offended uh, when someone <laughs> when someone bad mouths a Yugo. <laughs> no, no, no! Don't let's not uh, let's not let's not say I'm a Yugo defender in any way. <laughs> Sorry, oh, I, I fell into a villain laugh there. All right, well, if I'm if I'm waxing megalomaniacal and uh, getting Scott in trouble, that usually means it's time for us to head out for the week. Uh, we would like to hear from you. In the meantime, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we are Car Stuff HSW. Let us know. Oh wait, before we forget, nicknames. Oh yeah, nicknames. But you had one downshift, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. Um, Matt Max Miles Frederick. <laughs> Max Mi- that almost like sounds that. like a hypermiler name. Yeah, it does. It does mm. sound like Max Miles Hypermiler. Yeah. <laughs> Max Miles. Oh, like that would be his full name, Max yeah. Miles. Comma Hypermiler. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> oh man. How about our listeners maybe can suggest a couple? Yeah, if you have a if you have a good idea for a nickname for super producer uh, Matt Frederick, let us know. Extra points if it is a pun of some sort. If it's not fit to print, we might not read it, but that would probably make us chuckle. Oh, we'll read it, just not on air. We'll read it, just not on air. That's a much better way to say it. You can check out our uh, you can check out our previous audio episodes touching on similar topics by visiting our website, carstuffshow.com. And as always, our best suggestions come from listeners like you. Not a general you, you specifically. So uh, let us know what we should cover in future episodes and what your fellow audience members would like to hear. You can write to us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.